Hello, streamers. I want to play a movie. For years you have wasted away your time, frittering it away, waiting for a new Saw movie to be announced. But what I want to know is, are you able to sit through a terrible Saw wannabe ripoff? Or will you gnaw your own arm off to save yourself instead? Watch or run. Make your choice. This is the Bloodstream. Welcome back aboard, streamers. Now, I know I said I wasn't going to get too much into talking before the actual review on a show like I did the first time around just because, you know, I had to set up what the hell this is. But I realized after I finished editing and posting the, sh the first episode, I forgot something mildly important. It's a bit of an error on my part, and I should correct that now. Hi, my name is Jason Gray. I didn't mention that at all during the first episode. I mentioned my site, my other projects, places you could find me, but did I give my name? No, that would have made sense. I had a chance to go back and fix that beforehand, but I figured I'd leave it out there, see if anyone noticed. So yeah, that's really the main point of housekeeping I wanted to get into. Hope you liked the start of the show with the bit of the jigsaw gag, that was fun to do. I always love finding new things I can do in audio. I kind of feel now though that I've opened the door to being stuck doing some kind of neat, silly gag intro every episode. I'm not gonna hold too tightly to that. If I don't have a good idea, I'm not gonna force it. But if I got something fun to do, I'll do something fun. Maybe I'll do a, a found footage riff that I can reuse every time I stream a found footage movie. That'll, that would make sense. So yeah, I'm Jason Gray, this is The Bloodstream. And basically what this show is, I'm going to actually let someone else explain it, and then I'll be back to explain the explanation. So. Let's go to our first clip. That's one of the and best. Goes that's one of the best things about streaming services is you yeah. give a film a shot just kind of to see what happens, and it's almost like it's something that I kind of wanted to de develop into another series of shows. I want to. I don't know what to call it yet, but it's sort of like a streaming roulette where you check something out, you sort of read the description, and you just pull the trigger and go, and then you either are bored to death and you hate it, or it turns out to be this fucking golden bullet that blows your mind, right? That was a clip of Court PsyOps from the Legion podcast show, Cinema PsyOps. As I was waiting for iTunes to approve my podcast into their store, and I'm just listening to the newest episode last Sunday of Cinema PsyOps, and Court started talking about the other show idea, which is the clip you just heard. And I start screaming at my monitor. He's like, I got the idea, I don't have a, a name for it. I'm like, I have a name, I have a show, it's right here! And, and don't misunderstand, I wasn't screaming because I'm like, how dare you steal my idea. I was screaming because, holy shit, other people are on the same wavelength as me. At least one other person is out there thinking, hey, this is a possible show idea. I'm not completely off my rocker. So that actually gave me a, a bit more hope and encouragement to get this done. Now that I've properly introed myself, giving you what the show is, I'm just gonna dive right in, play the trailer for this week's movie. And I'll be back right after that. Dr. Burns? Mr. Burns? I'm Dr. Norman Adler. I understand you and your husband have been having some 
difficulties. So that was the trailer for Riddle Room. I should probably mention things like that before playing the trailer, but I'll do that next week. The plot of Riddle Room is fairly simple. You got a woman, Emily Burns. She's thrown into this small room that has nothing in it but a cot and an LCD display counting down from 27 hours or so. She takes a look around and finds a matchbook crammed in between two spots where the paneling meets. And on it is scrawled the date, January 11th, and the time, 8.30pm. She clearly has no idea why she's been thrown into this room, and the whole plot is why is she there, what's going on, who's doing this. We've seen movies of this sort before. I introed the show with a jigsaw bit, so that's pretty self-explanatory. Of course, with the matchbook stuck in the wall and uh, around the doorknob, there's a lot of scratches. It's a pretty safe bet the people have done the tour before. So again... Lots of questions, no answers yet. That's fine, we're just getting started. And fair warning, like the whole first half of this movie is nothing but Emily wandering around the room trying to figure out what's going on. Occasionally people coming in and out to put things in the room for her. There's two guys that are covered all in black and have protective, protective masks like uh, they were at construction sites or uh, medical professionals. Not, not the full gas mask deal, but just the one that covers the mouth and nose. And, you know, not just a simple surgical mask. It's the full deal industrial strength type, type of thing. But, yeah, the two men in black wheel in a TV and leave a sandwich for Emily. Like I was saying, the movie is nothing but her wandering around the room trying to figure things out for a good third to half of the film. So there's not a lot of clips for the first half because there's not a lot of dialogue. Anyways, the TV gets turned on and it's showing security footage in the very room she's in. She sees the camera. Uh, she feels something in the back of her neck and, and uses the camera to show on the TV what's in the back of her head. And it, it's yeah, the weird lump. At the time, I thought it was an implant. They go into more detail what that's about later in the film. But eventually, a, a third figure comes in, and I know he's different from the other two, because this one has a potato sack on his head. 
Already I'm trying not to make jokes about him being Jason from Friday 2, or the math mechanic, uh, uh, the, god damn it, the phantom from the town that dreaded sundown. In my review of that, I kept calling him the math mechanic and making bad car jokes. But anyway, I, I kept actually waiting for that guy to start going the moomin chance routines. Anyways, I'm gonna be calling the guy Potato Sack every time he shows up. That's who it is. He seems to be the guy in charge, does most of the talking, and, you know, starts asking about the date that's on the matchbook. Emily doesn't know what he's talking about or claims to. We're not sure who knows what and what each person wants to know out of everything at this point. Everyone's a bit of a blank slate. Once Potato Sack leaves the room, Emily's fiddling around with the matchbook and the key falls out but it doesn't fit in the door. There's no keyhole on this side of things. Now, personally, it's one of those keyholes that has a little... It it's, has one of those safety features where it's a tiny hole where you can poke something in and it'll pop the lock in case of emergencies. I'd be looking for a paperclip or pin or anything. Jury rig something in that room, I'm sure. I could get out of that lock, almost certainly. But let's say she figured something like that on the, and decided to stay in there. Just to figure out what the hell is going on. Just to up the creepy factor, the TV randomly starts playing videotapes of other stuff. They have a video from Emily's graduation from college before she went into being an, a doctor. Various points in the movie they have footage from around her house somehow. But fortunately we at least get something going on that breaks this up when we hear screaming coming from the other room. And at this point, I'm kind of thinking it's a trick to scare Emily because I know how interrogations often go. In fact, speaking of interrogations, Potato Sack and his friends bring in a bucket of water and start dunking Emily's head in it. The water torture ends up triggering a flashback and, oh, thank God it brings in something besides these four walls in this room. And that brings us to our first clip from the movie. Every second counts. If every second counts, then get on with it! <sighs> yeah, it's a brief flashback. And there's a lot of that sounds kind of throwaway, but it actually turns around and make it important later on. Gotta give him credit for that. After the flashback, Emily hears a voice from the other side of the wall. It's the woman who was screaming earlier. It's someone she actually knows from work, Amanda, and they kind of lift up this runner along the bottom of the wall and they communicate down on the floor and they start passing notes back and forth. Not sharing any clips of that because it's super quiet and whispery and I ain't got time to clean that up. I remember having a theory at this point that maybe these flashes she keeps having are like your life flashes before your eyes. I thought maybe she could 
she's maybe dying at this point and kind of Egyptian deal where they're weighing her life one way or the other to see if she's worthy of going on to heaven or whatever she believes in. And that theory ended up being wrong, as pretty much every one I had. Things ended up being very straightforward at the end of this, but again, I'll get to that. After a bit more talking with Amanda and some more stuff, Mumunshan's sackhead walks back in and starts asking about a colleague of hers, uh, Dr. Cobb? Yeah, I'm gonna go with Dr. Cobb, I think that's what my notes say. Uh, it's the same guy that was talking about repetition and tapping on the desk in the clip. It turns out he died in an explosion. Sackhead shows some news footage of that on the TV and it wrecks Emily for a bit because last she knew he was alive. Uh, there had a weird scene where it looks like she was having an affair with him. I'm not really sure if I'm reading that right. I'm not gonna get too into that because I'm probably wrong. After Sackhead leaves again, we get more wandering around the room and eventually Emily figures she'll try poking into the ceiling tiles because they're like in any office building easy to push up and get out of the way but instead of escaping she finds what looks like a shoebox and inside is a box cutter and a message that says use me this raises a few questions about where previous occupants of the riddle room got these items but at the time it was just more mystery and again it actually gets explained further down the road eventually emily realizes the arrow on the note is pointing down and it's not pointing to the knife saying use me, it's pointing at the carpet where the knife should be used. So once she realizes that she can use the box cutter on the carpet, she gets down on all fours and starts cutting a rug. So the box in the ceiling leads to her pulling up the rug, which leads to her finding a loose floorboard, which leads to another box. This box, however, is locked. The lock which the key she found earlier happens to fit into. Inside that box, she finds a newspaper with the date January 11th. This is a squawking room escape video game turned into a movie, isn't it? She hears Potato Sack coming, so she scrambles to hide all her evidence, get the carpet back in place. She tucks the knife into the waistband of her pants, and her tormentor comes walking in again. He tries to confront her again some more about January 11th, what that's all about, and the box cutter slips and falls, hits the floor. And once that happens, it leads us to the next clip. Now we're getting somewhere. Ruben! What are you doing to my head? Ruben! What am I doing here? Ruben! And that clip leads to yet another flashback to earlier in the movie where Momenchant's sackhead was asking about Cobb. To quote my own riff on Watchmen for my other site, when a movie I'm watching uses footage from the very same movie that was played not that long ago, I just watched this 35 minutes ago! Anyways, after finding the knife and having more flashbacks, they wisely sedate Emily, cleanse the room, grab a lot of the stuff out of there. They tie her up again, but that doesn't last. We also find out that Amanda has a clock of her own that runs out, and it sounds like they kill her. I'm still going with that she's kind of in on the plot, whatever it is. So Amanda's apparent death triggers another flashback, this time with Emily and Amanda conspiring in what looks to be the same paneled room, which raises a lot of questions. And I'm going to drop that flashback in here simply because these flashbacks are a lot of the only dialogue in the movie and it breaks up me talking. 
At least show them your next move. Give them something to go on. Show them you're willing to cooperate. Amanda. Anything is better than nothing. Do you really want to help? Of course. At this point, I'm noticing Emily doesn't really remember these things until she's flashing back to them. And all I'm thinking of, are they trying out some sort of uh, retcon-like drug that wipes memory and they're trying to see what she remembers? After the bit with Amanda, we get a, a bit more flashbacks with Cobb, and they're doing something really neat I like with these. They're doing the thing where each time they go back to something we've already seen, it kind of, it looks different. And I don't mean that they're just adding more footage or they're expanding the scene so it has greater context. But it looks, in this particular example, the scene with Cobb we see again is more washed out. It gives, it's a really good visual cue that it's a memory. You know, kind of hazy, not quite the same. I like that touch. But after the flashbacks, Sackhead is back there asking more stuff. And he's mumbling, Emily's distraught, her face is in the carpet, and she's mumbling into that. I had to turn on the subtitles at this point just to understand what they were saying. But since she's not being really helpful at this point, they bring back in the water torture, and that brings us in another clip. So Sackhead's obviously getting frustrated at this point. He plays a videotape of her husband, Distraught, trying to find out what's going on with her. And this leads to more wandering around the room trying to figure things out. Wash, rinse, rinse, repeat at this point. She's going around trying to pull at stuff and I just keep thinking, you got this thing along the base of the wall that you can lift up to talk to someone on the other side. Couldn't you just grab the cheap paneling and start yanking? Anyways, after some more wandering, Emily seems to come up with a bit of a plan and she calls her bathroom break. I actually think that's a pretty good idea. I've been talking for a while. You need a break. I need a break. So while that's going on, I'll play the next clip. Please, I, I just really have to go to the bathroom. No. I'm not gonna go to the bathroom in here. Yourself. Please. Please, I'll talk. I'll tell you whatever you want to know. Everything about January 11th. I'll, I'll finish the formula. Anything you want. Please. Is that so? Yes. Just let me use the bathroom and for God's sake, something else to eat and I'll talk. I just... just need to see my daughter. 
hear that? Make it quick. Got it. So, did I miss anything? Oh, right. The gun has blanks in it, which is a smart move on the captor's part because it lets you have something to threaten and still make a loud noise to quote-unquote prove you have bullets in the gun. And if they get a hold of the weapon, well, you don't get hurt. At least that's what a lot of people think. Quite frankly, I see her with the gun with the blanks in it, and I'm yelling at the screen, Go on, get closer! Get all Eric Draven up in this thing and, you know, just shoot him. It'll still hurt. Might even kill him. We know how this thing works. Anyways, she decides not to you know, shoot him with blanks to see if that will do anything. It would. It totally would. And instead it leads to him asking again what had the deal with January 11th. And I'm just gonna go right to another really short clip that really blows the movie wide open. But before I play the clip, I just wanna say, this is about to dive into serious spoiler territory, and it's only gonna get worse from here. If you wanna bail and go into this movie clean, now's the time to do it because everything's off the table at this point. What is right? Holy potatoes. So she thinks that it's only January 3rd, so that's why the whole January 11th question is confusing her. And we find out she thought it's January 3rd for the last four months. Yeah, it's a little memento, but a little different too. And we see security camera footage from the camera in the room, and we watch as she starts setting stuff up that we've already seen her messing around with, like the box, the box cutter, other stuff. You get the idea, the, the, the matchbook. And at this point, they have her pull off some of the paneling, like I told her to in the first place, and we see it's a glass wall, and on the other side is her husband and little kid. Yes, that's right, she's trapped in a glass cage of emotion. But this leads to even more questions as Sackhead starts taking off his mask and the voice changer, and I'm gonna let him introduce himself in the next clip. I apologize for all these precautions, but 
please try to stay calm. We haven't much time. Much time? Andrew, what's he talking about? Dr. Burns, in less than 30 minutes, this all will go away. As if it never happened, so I can't stress enough. Every second counts. My name is Dr. Norman Adley. Do you know me? No. I'm your doctor, my dear. More than that, I'm your friend. These men on the floor, they're also your friends. Now, listen, I need you to focus. Andrew, what's happening? Emmy, do what he says. Please. Dr. Burns, I need you to think about why you're here. The answer is in you. It always has been. You just need to find it. January 11th. January 11th. I think they're starting to come together with a plot here. We've got the doctor who claims he's trying to help her. There's weird stuff going on with her memory. I think her actually starting to make sense. You know, all these flashbacks are resurfacing memories from between January 3rd and January 11th. We flash back again and fill in a whole lot more information. The infamous date is a uh, meeting she was going to have with her husband who she had been estranged with for some time which I guess that might tie back in with her being close with Cobb. Maybe it wasn't an affair. Maybe it was something they were getting into after a separation with her husband. Anyways, Emily missed the meeting with her husband because she was busy at work and had cracked a formula that her and Cobb were working on. So after cracking this project, Cobb head down to the lab to mess around with chemicals. While Emily's on the phone trying to make apologies, Cobb mixes the wrong things, lights a match, and there's an explosion. It kills him, and whatever the chemicals did start to affect Emily, and that leads us into the next clip. We need to know what he was working with. What it was he was doing. This Hazel project. Yes, exactly. And you were consulting on that with him. Why? Why does any of this matter? Because whatever it was, whatever he was working with, it's what did this to you. It's what produced this virus. What virus, Andrew? What virus? You tell us. You're the only one who can, Dr. Burns. I'm sorry, but without your knowledge of what kind of viral mutation could have taken place in this explosion, there's no hope of treating you. The marks on the back of your neck. Burst blood vessels. The stiffness, the headaches, the motor function issues, the loss of balance, hallucinations, retrograde amnesia. My dear, it's all from the inflammation of your brain. My dear, you have a pathogen inside you. A viral mutation that science has never seen up to this point. A viral mutation that was created in your laboratory, Dr. Burns, using your inventory in the experiment that you consulted on with Dr. Cobb. Now, he's gone. So you're it. And each day we don't identify this pathogen, it will continue to eat away at your body and your mind. Take a moment to process all this. But let me stress again, time is very much of the essence here. A substantial amount of damage is being done on a daily basis to your brain's MTL. Gradually, you're losing the ability to create new memories. In less than 30 minutes, all of us will still be standing here the same. But for you, it'll be January 3rd, all over again. We tried everything. Every test you can imagine. 
every doctor, every medication, herbal remedies, psychoanalysis, dream analysis, nothing worked. Dr. Burns, you're suffering from post-traumatic amnesia. And it's a malady I've treated many times in my career, but for the most severe of my patients, I provide this, an experimental, highly invasive therapy. I subject the patient to a threatening scenario. This causes them to become overwhelmed with intense emotion. Then at the same time, I employ standard psychoanalytical techniques, music, video, photographs, newscasts, anything that can help us trick the amygdala and help us pry loose those hidden memories. It's true, Emily. We're all here for you. A complete and utter fabrication done only with your input and the help of your family and your friends. You made a swear not to get involved. I'm so sorry. No, no, there's no need for any of us to be sorry. We're all in this together, for Emily. So, we'd like to welcome you to this, our fifth attempt. And I must say, we're making splendid progress. But, I need more. I need you to go deeper into that mind of yours, Dr. Burns. And tell me everything, everything that you can about January 11th. So to sum up, they apparently created a new form of pathogen which is eating away at her brain and that's why her memory is resetting every 28 hours with less and less memories each cycle. I kind of get what they're going for here. I, I get the treatment. I get trying to push her to kind of get an adrenaline boost or whatever to push through whatever the barriers are and have more memories come up and so she'll be able to identify the formula. Does anyone else think this is really excessive way to treat amnesia? I get they're on a time crunch, but it, it just pushes that tiny bit past reality for me. And really, that's pretty much the movie. She sets some things up again. They re redress the room. They actually clean up the doorknob this time around for number six. It honestly feels like there, there should be that like one last twist. Something more than just the movie coming back around to the start again. Once the hell starts falling into place, you know that's going to happen anyways. But I almost want the doctor to be trying to get the formula for evil purposes. It, it feels like you're just missing something. Here's the thing that's really getting to me though. The virus is eating her brain, which is causing her memory to reset and destroying memories. But while it's destroying memories, the therapy is helping her recover memories, which are then reset, but with every new cycle, more memories are being destroyed. So there's a the feedback loop that's not quite working here and I don't think both things happening is working with the plot. I'm not quite grappling the tug of war. I mean, I am conceptually, but I don't think it works like the way they want it to is what I'm trying to say. It's a little confusing. And the other thing that's bugging me, they keep talking about a pathogen. Her husband and daughter are on the opposite side of the glass cage of emotion, but she was talking face to face with Anna, I mean, she was like right up in her face, only separated by however thick the wall was, passing notes back and forth. The doctor's in the room with her, and up to that point, the quote-unquote gas masks make sense because, you know, they don't want to be affected by the pathogen. Other people are on the other side of glass while she's in quarantine. They're trying to do two different things here, and they're not meshing right. Maybe they're just taking extra precautions for the husband and daughter. I get, I would get that. I could see the psychiatrist putting himself 
in danger because you have to be right there in with her. And they take all the precautions they can, but once he unmasks, that goes out the window, which I could get behind that. And I could even get behind keeping the family away just as a precaution. But then they have Amanda walk back in to show she's still alive and in on it, like I said from the beginning. And she's standing right next to the kid. So it's like, I have a love-hate thing with this movie right now. And I, I, I get this a lot. On the one hand, it's like someone came up to me and said, Here, this is exactly the sort of story you like. It's got a lot of twists and turns. It's got a really interesting idea trying to figure out what's going on. You should love it. Oh, thank you, good sir. This should be ever so wonderful. But there's a catch. We're going to tell this story in exactly the worst way possible that ends up making no sense whatsoever. You dirty bastards. I love the plot. I love actually a lot of the acting. It does get a little bit slow with just her in the room for a while, but I really like the doctor. He's got a good sense of menace with the voice changer and stuff. He only has the few lines at the end once he unmasks, but he has the infinite likability and presence even though he's done all this horrible stuff already. But as I've been rambling on here, the plot's a mess. They had a good idea, they had a good puzzle, but they just didn't take enough care to work through some of the minutia of the details. And I'm getting so hung up on those details that I'm, I'm tripping over them. And it's stopping me from really loving this movie. It's not bad. It's got an interesting plot, and if you can deal with some major, major frustration in the ultimate logic of everything. If you can get behind them tormenting this poor woman just to get her memory back and going to greater length than I think her should really be necessary, you might actually like this. There's good stuff here. It's entertaining and it's under 80 minutes, so give it a shot. What the heck? I liked it a lot more than I thought I would, but it's got really gigantic problems. And I'm gonna cut this short at this point because I'm going around in circles. You get the idea. The plot's a mess, but there's some good stuff buried in there. And the twist with the four months and what was going on, it kind of really grabbed my attention at that point. I don't want to say it's up there with twists like the reveal at the end of the original Saw, but it's kind of close. There's something to it, to the idea that I really ended up liking. I don't feel like my time's wasted, and while the movie sure does have problems, I was entertained. What can I say? I have terrible taste. So that was The Riddle Room, and that's going to wrap up episode 2 of The Bloodstream. I'm Jason Gray. Haha, I got my name in again. You can read my stuff at triskadecafiles.com. You can like, subscribe, review this on iTunes. If you search for The Bloodstream on Facebook, you should be able to find us. Uh, I use the same logo there, so try to look for that. If you've got any suggestions for movies that are streaming on Amazon and Netflix, you can leave a comment on Facebook. You can shoot me an email at phoenix, F-O-E-N-I-X, at gmail.com. And as always, my intro and outro music is Baba Yaga by Kevin McLeod. Check out his stuff at incompetech.com. That just about wraps things up, so thanks for listening, and keep streaming.
Don't worry. <laughs> It'll only hurt. A lot. <laughs>